Welcome back to Beyond Culture, with a podcast that attempts to bridge the gap between culture and politics. I'm your co-host Abel, and today's episode is a conversation between myself, my co-host Ivan, and Noah Mary B. Noah is a marketer, an educator, an entrepreneur, an author, and a public speaker. In this episode, we discuss Noah's different ventures, such as starting his own marketing agency, writing books, and writing best-selling courses on Udemy. We talked about what it takes to be successful on social media, his views on traditional education, his creative process, and many other things. So take a listen. Welcome back to Beyond Culture. I'm your host, Ivan. I'm here with my co-host, Abel. We are the podcast that attempts to bridge the gap between culture and politics. Today, we have a special guest in the building, Noah Meribi. What is up, everybody? Uh, guys, welcome. Uh, thanks for hosting me, by the way. I'm really excited to, to share some of the information I have with your audience. So uh, let's get to it. Mm. Yeah, well... N- thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um... As you, some of you guys may not know, Noah's right now in uh, Ottawa, same as Abel, who's also in Ottawa. And we were kind of talking a bit before um, before the podcast about how like we're still getting snow right now. So I think it's kind of forcing people to stay inside. I was wondering, Noah, like, what do you do? Like, I feel like this is like, it's become like such a great time for people who worked within social media and who work on the online platform to kind of utilize your their skills and their and their asset to kind of help people online like i was wondering like how have you kind of navigated this whole pandemic just being like home like for let's say almost every day see all the business that i do is uh, is saas based so everything is online it's in the cloud you don't really need to have an office you don't really need anything but a computer and a phone so, you know, I get, I ask a lot of people, you know, how are you holding up during the pandemic? This, this and that. And then mm-hmm. they ask me and I'm like, you know what? My lifestyle didn't really change much. Uh, there's not a lot of meetings yeah. anymore and uh, we don't go to the office anymore, but, uh, you know, I'm just working all the time still because just computer and phone, you know, so it didn't really affect my lifestyle much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and people can, can really, it's just the time to get creative work on whatever they want to work on, on their computer, on their phone, as you said, whether it's social media or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, yeah, and, um, I was, I, cause I feel like for, for a lot of people who might not know, uh, Noah, you might not know like what he's doing or what he he's, what he's into and what he specializes is kind of give, give people a bit of a background of what you've been what you've been doing and what and what do you do and what you specialize in? So I've been an entrepreneur for seven, almost eight years now. And uh, the first three to four years, I worked on a lot of projects, but they weren't successful. You know, when you're starting a business, you, you try and you try and it doesn't work. But I kept trying. And then on the third and fourth year, I started to um, to get more into digital marketing. I started an agency. 
I don't work on that anymore uh, because it's not really my passion. I discovered that my passion tends to be a lot more towards towards education, towards speaking, towards writing. So, um, so I started teaching people everything I know and I started learning more and teaching more. I started doing that on Udemy, on Skillshare, Teachable, LearnFly, Grinfer, a bunch of platforms. And, uh, and in the process, I wrote two books and I published them, um, The Pursuit of Meaning and The Habits of Success. And, uh, it was just a, you know, long process where we got to a point where we started working with organizations. I got better at communicating and, uh, and I started speaking in events and uh, in international speech contests. And, uh, and I, that's probably one of, one of the main things that I like to focus on is just speaking in general, public speaking. Mm -hmm. So kind of like a mm -hmm. combination of all of them, uh, I made an academy where I teach people different things related mm -hmm. to marketing and business on one side and then personal development and transformation on the other side. And combining both both of them together to just try to help people as much as I can. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if I can uh, step back a little bit and like kind of give the context about how I made uh, met you yeah. for the first time, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know if you recall this, but uh, it was uh, I think summer twenty eighteen. I was taking some classes. Um, I was, I studied, stayed in Ottawa and taking, I was taking some classes and, uh, I believe you're, you're subletting with, uh, a friend of mine, yeah. Karim. Yeah. And yeah. And, uh, like, so for people who don't live in Ottawa, I find that, uh, like if you live near campus and it's like during the summer, like everybody leaves and there's like very yeah. few people back it's left empty. in Ottawa. And when there's like a social gathering or anything like you literally meet everybody who's left in Ottawa, right so and uh, that's how i kind of met you at first and uh like and i saw you on uh well i think we exchanged um yeah. social media uh and i i've been following from afar and uh, i've just been seeing this growth and for me um like what caused me to like invite you on the show was uh i like i listened to an episode of the social life podcast with uh yep. jacob kelly and uh you were on there and uh um it's a great podcast by the it way is. people should listen to it and there's there's a there's a bunch of good stuff that you're talking about that i'd like you to share with our audience and if we can go back a bit into your background can you you um I I noticed that you you're doing e-commerce yeah. on Amazon and uh could you talk a little bit about that uh, and uh if e-commerce like drop shipping is still a thing and just uh if you can define it for our audience. So Abel, I missed I missed yeah. the last part All of good. your question. Uh do you mind repeating it? Yeah, so I was saying uh, could you like talk about your experience with drop shipping and just define it for our audience and uh talk about if like i suppose e how e-commerce works and just how and whether e-commerce whether it be on Amazon or on Shopify or anywhere else if it's still relevant in uh 2020 So there's there's two ways drop shipping works. One way is you can sell on Amazon. The other way is you can create your own website mm -hmm. and then drop ship stuff. Drop shipping basically means you will have products set on your website. You won't make any kind of investment and you will link existing products 
in markets, in cheaper markets, in China, for example, you will put the products and then when people buy them, the order gets processed from the seller in China and they will send it to them. So you're basically just spending money on marketing. Amazon, on the other hand, is you basically, you have to buy the product and you have to actually put an investment and then send it to the Amazon warehouse. And then Amazon would, would do the rest. They will deal with the processing if you want, unless you want to do that by yourself, but it's way easier to do it this way. And, uh, and when I, when I went into e-commerce, my idea was that it's hard to, to build a company and gain credibility so that people can trust the company and that people can trust you as a person. And then people know and trust the product. That is just a lot of steps. And I thought Amazon was easier. And, uh, and I started doing some research on Amazon. I got a bunch of products. I got products from China to sell them. And I saw that, you know, you can, you can do product research. You can see what products are selling, what products are missing. And I did just that. There was uh, three products and there wasn't a lot of them on Amazon. Bought them and I sent them to the warehouse, but then they weren't selling at all. Uh, barely one unit every like couple weeks. So I didn't give up then. I said, I said, I want to get creative about it. So I did a lot more research and uh, watched a lot of videos, started reading about it a bit. And I came across this product. Um, I don't know if, do you guys know what Funko Pops are? Those little, uh, bubblehead toys. Okay. So they're, they're like action figure toys, uh, based on like different movie okay, characters. Yes, yes. And then there is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, do you guys know the movie? So it was, it was still coming out yeah. and there was the new character, the baby Groot. Um, and those Funko Pops were getting so popular on Amazon. And I was looking at them. They were selling for like 59 or $69. And I went to Walmart right here in Ottawa and they were selling them for like 19 bucks. So I was like, all right, wait, that's, that's a big margin of profit there. And they had, mm-hmm. they had maybe like 20, 25 or something. I bought all of them and then I went home and I ordered online. I ordered about another 30, 35 or something, got them, sent them to Amazon and they all sold in less than two weeks. And I made about a thousand four hundred and something profit just on those. I was like, okay, this is amazing. I'm going to start getting into Funko Pops. So I put all that money into more Funko Pops, but the baby Groot was sold out. So I said, uh, you know what? They're working, they're working. I'll just get anything. And then I got a bunch of other Funko Pops and they didn't sell. They didn't sell as well as the baby Groot one was. So it was getting slower and slower and slower. And eventually I decided that, you know, it's just time consuming. I'm taking too much time in research. You have to do a lot of market research. There's a lot of competition. And I didn't have the capital to say, I'm going to go full in. And that's when I stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, just uh, based on my own research on dropshipping, like uh, obviously there's a bunch of people who uh, advertise online and tell you that uh, it's like you will get your shop set up and you start selling your product and it's basically passive income. You don't have to do anything, but uh, it like for, judging from uh, my experience from my research is, it, is that it takes a lot of uh, time at front up to first of all just develop the if you're at least market research if you, to find the, the right product or if you're going the route of developing a product that takes time and just the 
The other problem was the problem of inventory. Apparently, uh, Amazon has some requirements on inventory, so it's kind of hard for people to, if you're not selling as much, to buy a lot of products and let them go to waste. Or, like, you know, it's a little bit of a gamble. But uh, do you think there's a way of doing it right in, uh, doing, in this day and doing age? Doing dropshipping? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, there is a way. Well, first off, the biggest disadvantage that was happening in dropshipping is that when, when it's shipping from China, it's taking forever. And when people have the option of going on Amazon, ordering something and getting it the next day, they're not going to want to wait 14, 15 days, even if they go want to pay, you know, an extra 10 bucks. So handling shipments is, is crucial. If people can get inventory, and keep it and then they say you know we ship within two to three business days then they're kind of on the same level of amazon there but then this the second thing is that people need to there's margins of marketing if you do spend on marketing on ads you're going to get sales i have people i have one of some of my friends they're doing drop shipping right and they have a product selling for about uh 40 47 or 49 dollars and they have to spend about $25 to $30 in ads to get one sale, all right? Um, so if people are willing at first to refine their marketing, because you're going to try the ad the first time, it's not going to work. Keep trying it, keep refining your, uh, your website until you hit that sweet spot where you are getting a sale in marketing for less than, um, uh, than what you incur in costs and you're making a profit, then it can work. Otherwise, there's a lot of competition, and it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be hard to to pull it off. I was wondering what is the what are the most like common mediums for advertising when you do drop shipping? Like, what are the ones that you would say have been the most? Let's say have given you the most uh, return on investment. Which organic ads? organic ones. So don't put an ad with like a picture of the product and be like, go buy my product. Nobody go, nobody goes on Facebook, for example, with the intention of buying a product. I'm not going to open Facebook and be like, okay, now I'm going to wait till I see a product that's suitable and that it, it doesn't work that way, you know? But a lot of people, they pay promoters. So like uh, pages like Buzzfeed, for example, they make a little video saying, oh, people are going crazy about this new product, right? And then you see people using the product. See, you don't showcase the product. You showcase the result of it. You see people using it, having fun with it, you know, um, I don't know, getting, getting motivated, cutting their hair, whatever the product does. All right. And they showcase it in a way where it's organic. It's not somebody pushing the idea to them. It's them watching a video and being like, Oh, this looks like a nice product. So this, this is by far the best way you can do, not just for dropshipping, for any kind of marketing. Cause my mom, yeah, and uh, uh, I guess this, yeah, cause uh, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, cause what my mom would, cause obviously our parent, all of our parents, are pretty sure are on Facebook. You know, Africans they love they love Facebook and all that, and that's where I, th I feel like a lot of us have also created a big exodus. We kind of left Facebook because all the parents came, but uh, like she'll show me sometimes a product that she found on Facebook, and she'll she'll have me vet the product because even to her. It's like it seems like it's like it, this might be a scam. I don't know what it is, and I think as is that also you think plays in the fact that you don't like the, those type of ads don't work well on Facebook. To be honest, on Facebook, if you want to put an ad and try to sell a product, you can. Like it still works. It still works. 
but the margins are different. When Facebook was first starting, you can put an ad and literally with like a dollar in ad spend, you can be selling a product. But now you have your ad needs to be exposed to a lot more people in order for you to get one sale. So if your if your product is is less than 25 or 30 bucks, there's no way you can do Facebook ads and make a profit out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh yeah, I guess this is the perfect segue in, uh into your company that you started uh for in marketing and, and advertisement um uh called Kinetic Place if I have it right. And uh, could you talk to me about could you talk to us about uh like the process of starting the company and uh, how that was for you? It was uh it was painful. <laughs> Not going to lie because uh you know, at first, at first, I, I had no credibility in marketing other than the results that I had for myself. So, um, so I talked to, to a few clients, a few people just reached out and said, Hey, like, I'll work with you for free for one month. And if you think that what I'm doing is worth your money, then we can talk about business. And, and that was a successful strategy. I worked with them for a month. I showed them the results. I added value to their business. And then they're like, okay, look, we want to work with you. And we started working together. But the thing is, uh, what I notice with, with a lot of clients, when you're, when you're a small business, clients, they have a lot of demands. They want, they want you to do so many things. But at the same time, because they're a small business, they don't have the funds to support that kind of work. So that was kind of like the big obstacle. And then I started, you know, I had a lot of people that I know and I said, look, if you want to learn how this is working, you can come work with me. You can help me. And at the same time, I won't have uh, the same workload that I had. But obviously, it's hard to motivate people just by the idea of, oh, this business is going to, is going to grow. And when it does grow, uh, it's going to be profitable for both of us. Because people are not willing to work 10, 15 hours a week sometimes and just uh, not get paid for it, you know? So that was more like progressing into the business. I had I had a team, about 10 people working. Um, and at first it was working, it was amazing. But then things started to fall apart bit by bit and the workload will always fall back on the owner. And, and I couldn't, you know, I had obligations with my clients. I couldn't just say if people didn't do the work or they didn't do it properly, I had to do it again. And at the end of it, it was just, it was just consuming. It was really consuming. But the process of starting a business is is systematic, to be honest. You don't need a lot to start a business nowadays. You need a website, you need a service, an idea, a mission, a vision, and then you start reaching out to clients start for free at first because you don't have the credibility yeah. and then start building on top of that. Yeah. And how would you go about uh, reaching out to clients? Would you do it? Uh, like, would you do it online or would you do it physically around like, I guess, Ottawa? So, or so the way I did it is I, I wanted to get into like restaurants, bars and pubs because I thought that doing social media for these kind of places would be really interesting. It's a lot of fun. And, and I went on, um, on Yelp and I started looking at all the restaurants in Ottawa 
And I started noticing that some of them did not have websites. Now, when, you know, when a, when a company or a business, they don't have a website, even a pub or a restaurant, then that means they're not really well integrated into digital marketing and that they might need my services. So whenever I found a business that doesn't have a website and then I look them up on, uh, on social media and they're not really on social media or like they have like five followers, I start reaching out to them and being like, Hey, let's meet up. Let's talk. I do this, this and that. And I would work with you for free. So obviously most of them were really interested. They're like, okay, let's meet up. Uh, some people were even skeptical. They're like, all right, there's a catch there. Where's the cash? I'm like, there's no cash. I'm just trying to grow my yeah. business. And, and that's, that's how I did it. Literally email, Instagram, Facebook, and then I'd go and meet them and close the deal. Mm-hmm. Cause I was, uh, the, the concept of working for free is such an interesting concept to me because it's, it requires sacrifice. But I guess once you believe so much in the service you're doing, you know, you're going to find, you're going to get that return on investment eventually. Absolutely. See, um, working for free people people always take it as as somebody's working for free um i'm i'm working with somebody for free but he's my mentor he's a lot more successful than me he's he's a multimillionaire and he's had massive success in business and i work with him and i work for him every day almost for free for free i don't i i never ask him for money i don't even think about it because there's, there's a thing here. Money, you can, you can get paid and then you're going to go waste your money, buy some shoes, buy ultra boost or do whatever you want. Right. And then the money's gone. Money's gone. But the knowledge you acquire, what I learned from him is worth a lot, a lot more than what he could have ever paid me because I have this knowledge for the rest of my life and I can use it whenever I want, however I want, and I can scale it the way I want. But most people won't look at it this way especially people who don't have really like entrepreneurial tendencies who don't want to start a business and they don't think that way. They will look at it as, Oh, I'm working for free. No, you're working for exchange of knowledge and skill sets is how I look at it. You know? And I'm wondering how do you even, how do you even get to that point of developing that mentality? Cause did it come from somewhere or it's just something you knew you had to do? It's, you know, it's not just something you have to do. You, you work on it every day. Like, like, um, you know, I, I share, usually I share on, on Instagram. I share, you know, my, my success and my work and my business and all that. But I often tell people that, you know, that doesn't mean that this is me every day. Like, okay, I have days where I work 14, 16 hours, but I have days where I barely work for like eight hours and I just can't, I just can't work, you know? Like it happens with everybody. It's a continuous process. I work on my mindset every single day. I don't miss a day where I, and when I do miss a day where I don't work on my mindset, the next day I just feel awful. And it's just a continuous process, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And could you talk about, I I guess, the the trends in marketing and, uh, like I gather your, you're, I'm not sure if you're, you're still doing marketing at the University of Ottawa, but could you talk a little bit about the, like the, the trends in marketing, whether it be the difference between, uh, marketing online or social media marketing versus traditional marketing and what trends do you see there? Um, 
you know, I studied marketing at UOttawa for three years. All right. And, and this is, this year was my last year before I graduate. And I stopped going to school. I quit school. The reason being is in three years, in three years in a marketing program, I did not learn one single thing. And, and all the marketing students who are listening to this, they, they know exactly what I'm talking about. We do not learn one single thing that you can actually apply in today's world. The, my first marketing class, I remember really well, um, the professor started t- talking about billboards and magazines and how advertising works on billboards and magazines. And I'm like, people sitting in their cars, they're looking at their phones. They're not looking at the billboard. Somebody waiting at a doctor's office, he's on his phone. He's not scrolling through a magazine. The only people looking, skimming through magazines is probably my father, who's like almost 70 and who barely knows how to use a phone. He would sit down and look at a magazine. But you know what? He's not going to buy your product. So uh, this is where I started being a bit skeptical about it. I'm like, all right, we're learning traditional marketing and I can understand, you know, you got to understand the basis of traditional marketing because at the end of the day, it got translated into SaaS, into a digital form. But the foundation of it is completely different. There's a lot of, there's a lot of factors. Our attention span is different. People's attention span was a lot longer when we used to use traditional marketing than it is right now. There's a lot of factors that get into it and you finish your marketing degree and you think that now you're, you're supposed to be a, a marketing god and you, uh, you launch your marketing campaign only to realize that, Hey, uh, there's something missing here. It's not working, you know? And, and I see that, I see that really, really often. I see that really, really often. And it's funny that you say that because I'm a, I'm also like, I'm a business within, into a business student into like marketing specialization. So literally everything you said is like, bro, it literally hit me right <laughs> in my heart. Cause I'm like, this is so, it's so facts. Like I will find myself in class and they're talking about like, even, even worse than billboards, you probably heard about this too. Like marketing through um they're like postal uh cards or stuff like that or flyers or etc etc yellow like pages types of thing yellow who, who even yellow uses pages. yellow pages exactly like i don't even know the last time i even i don't think i ever even touched a, uh, that book ever in my life that's so, the thing like i i so i like i exactly like exactly what you were saying i could relate to that a lot like also Simply being in class, like yes, we're in marketing class, etc. But you also have, and you see, and you see, you look around you, and you look at all these students, people on their phone, their computers, and etc. And I think that's when it really sticks out to me. It's like the world is changing, and I don't feel like university is adapting to that, especially when it comes to like business and marketing. Like they're just the the degree, the programs just aren't adapting to that. They're not. They're not. You know uh, how. How much would it cost to get a degree in marketing? Maybe like like forty thousand dollars. Entire thing. I bought a course online for less than a hundred bucks, less than a hundred bucks, and it taught me everything I needed to know. And after that course, I had successful marketing strategies. I I knew everything I needed to know about marketing. And you look at it, you're like, well, is it really worth it? You know, 
a lot of people, they, they, they talk to me about this. They're like, like, you know, you had one year left, like, like just finish it, just finish it. And I'm like, I'm like, no, no, no. One year left means one year where I'm focusing full time on school and I can't focus on my business. That's another 10 to $12,000 of money that I'm spending on something that right now I know is not going to advance me to towards my goals or anything. And it just didn't just didn't make sense to me because literally, as you were saying, the world is changing. You don't even have to buy a course. You can go on YouTube and look for Facebook ads. And I promise you, if you do that for a week and you skim through videos and you start right, taking notes and trying, testing and trying, you're going to have successful ad campaigns. It's as simple as that. Mm. And um, I had a question that kind of, it, it kind of relates to marketing, but it's more of a, it's more like, I want to get your thought on this because we had an episode uh, like a few months back about big tech and the way companies compile data and obviously being uh, the marketer you are, you understand how crucial data is. So we were coming at this from, from the angle of politics, but where do you think the, the line gets crossed and it becomes unethical to gather data on, let's say, your potential customers? Cause you see a lot of companies, they, like say Facebook, they gather data and then they sell it to third parties. And then for, for a lot of customers, like we don't know our data is going to that third and fourth party. We have no idea. So I was wondering, where do you draw the line? I, I draw. <laughs> See, it's, it's a really thin line, but uh, you draw the line when, when data is interfering with your personal life. When there is information that shouldn't, that people shouldn't really have, shouldn't really know, and, and they somehow do. And, and you know, I, I heard a lot of people say this, after, especially after Zuckerberg's um, case with the, with the Congress. And they'd be like, man, it's so weird. I was just walking somewhere and I was talking to my friend about this product. I didn't use my phone. I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I was just talking to him about it. Or some people even go, go overboard and they're like, I was just thinking about it. I didn't even say it. And then I opened my phone and I got a Facebook ad about it. Um, and they're like, yeah, they're crossing the line. But look, like these things are monitored. Or like like Facebook at first, maybe they were doing some breaching, but after after the big Congress issue, they they're not they're not doing that anymore. A lot of websites they use cookies, and cookies this is where it gets tricky because they can they can set a cookie. You go on a website, you allow cookies, and then the cookies are on your browser. Then they can know everything you're doing on your browser. Oh, you know. So, so there's a lot of ways companies are trying to collect data. Some ways are ethical, some aren't, but obviously to anybody like starting in marketing, the best data you can get is, is Google analytics or your website insights, Facebook ads insights, whatever you have. Otherwise the big corporations, we don't really know what they're doing. Like to be, to be completely fair and transparent about it. We have no idea what's happening under the table. Uh, at Facebook and Google in terms of, you know, data gathering. So there is a line, there is a line and, and they probably cross it often, but can we do something about it? I don't really know. We have, we have to use those platforms. We can't live without them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, c- certainly. And uh, for me, 
my uh my views on this are that this is like a new this is a new territory right and uh like we in uh in previous years we we didn't allow services or companies to get into our lives as much as facebook and uh these other these other companies do and you know and the 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 fact the thing is the weird thing is that we let them do it for free right because they're providing us a <laughs> yeah. service and in order to us to, like for us to get the service we just we give the, our da- data and the 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 relationship the problem is that the relationship wasn't always well defined right the, people didn't understand that they were the product they weren't customers you know you you weren't paying facebook anything you were you you're you were the product facebook was getting paid to to know about you and uh, to gather data from you right and 100%. like the the fact that like i suppose that relationship wasn't well defined is i think that was that was the big issue and i think now there there's more awareness about that and the fact you know and regulation is coming along the for facebook and these other companies for sure yep. yeah and uh like if we can i suppose we can use that as a segue towards uh social media in general and uh like for individuals and entrepreneurs getting started on social media in order to promote i suppose to sell their products or so sell their service mm-hmm. or even in our case just promote the pro- the podcast yep. for example we like going into it, you know, like I didn't realize how much work it was, you know, like just trying to like develop content and add value to your content and try to reach out to new people. And even when you like uh, advertising and all those, those kind of things, you know, so what, what would be your advice to someone who's getting started on social media? First, have a plan. Have a have a social media and marketing plan because you know it's it's one thing to say I want to start an Instagram page and I want to you know get more followers I want to become an influencer I want to do this and that it's another thing to say I want to start a a podcast page where I upload an episode on Tuesday Wednesday and Friday. And I upload a summary on Monday and, and Sunday. And you start building a plan in a sense where you know exactly what you need to do, exactly what you need to do in order for you to start growing. And then the other part of it is, how am I going to add value to people? How am I going to add value? You know, on, on your Instagram page, like you guys add a lot of podcast episodes and a lot of a lot of stuff that actually add value to people. I don't, I like, if you look at my Instagram page, it's nothing, nothing of value, right? It's how, it's how you present the value. I write a lot of blogs. So I use blogging in terms of social media to promote value. And then by default, this helps you grow other platforms. So, you know, most people, when they start on social media, they're like, all right, I'm going to start an Instagram page, a YouTube page, a Facebook page, a Twitter page, a LinkedIn page. And that takes a lot of work. Just Instagram alone takes a lot of work. So the best advice would be to make a plan, learn or understand how you want to add value, and then just pick one platform at first 
and stick to it. Get very, very big on one platform and then leverage that platform to grow the rest of your platforms later on. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I suppose before getting, as you mentioned, that you, you write courses and stuff, before getting to cor- your course writing, uh, I'd like to talk to you about Medium. I uh, I noticed that you do Medium. Medium is something that I discovered recently. Yeah. Well, not recently because I've read articles on Medium, but I re- discovered it as a means, as a way people actually make money online, right? And uh, like, could you talk about Medium? Do you do Medium? Do you write on Medium I a have, lot? Or uh, I have like fifty blogs on Medium. Um, I right now I don't write as often on Medium anymore because I'm uploading the blogs on my uh, on my own website. But when I first started using Medium, and I made I made decent amount of money on Medium, even though that wasn't the goal. The power of Medium is that you can leverage it in terms of organic marketing. So I would write a blog and I would give people so many information for free and people would read it and they'd enjoy it. And a lot of my blogs got selected by, by medium curators and they got hosted by like the startup uh, pages on medium. And the thing is I give, give, give Gary V talks about this marketing principle, uh, give, 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 and then monetize. So, You give people a lot of value, a lot of value, a lot of value. And at the end, you put a little call to action. It's how psychology works. When somebody gives you a lot of things and then they ask you for a little favor at the end, you're more likely to do it. So if you write a blog and at the end you're like, hey, if you enjoyed reading this, go follow my Instagram page. A lot of people will. A lot of people will, you know, and that's that's truly the power of medium is how you can leverage it to build your audience. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, why sure. do you think like a guy like even you or a guy like Gary Vee, why do you think there's just become like a, such values for guys uh, like you? Like what what do you think has you kind of like, in a way you guys have kind of become like the influencers that offer more values than the what we truly call influencers? Like, what do you think? What What do you think it is? He was never aiming to be an influencer. He was never aiming to be an influencer. He, he wanted to add as much value and help as much people as possible. See, growth, growth is a consequence of value. Growth is never a goal. You can't aim. I don't, you can't aim to be an influencer. You can aim to add as much value as you can. And as a consequence, you'll become an influencer and you know, Gary V, Gary V changed his perspectives a lot. When he was first starting off, he was like, grind, grind, work all the time, no breaks, you know, 24 seven, 365. And now you see his videos. He's like, no, do what you love, do what you're passionate about. You know, his perspective changed a lot because he became an influencer and he's like, okay, if I keep, if I keep saying what I'm saying, a lot of people are gonna, are gonna bash me about it. So he's truck, you know, he changed his perspective, but you know, it's just, it's just a consequence of value, man. Like if he wasn't valuable, if he didn't provide valuable information, if he wasn't one of the top people uh, in his industry, he wouldn't have became an influencer, you know? Yeah. And uh, I suppose one of the ways that uh, you provide values through your courses, either on uh, 
Udemy or Skillshare. Could you talk a little bit about your courses and what they're often about? So when I first started building courses, I was uh, literally just like seeing some problems I had in my life and how I solved them, how I became more productive in my business, for example. And then I made a course about, you know, being productive, um, how I'm able to to read a certain amount of books to a, a year and then what strategies I use to read faster, to learn faster, to memorize better and then put that into a course. But then, you know, even though it was making good money, um, I just did not really enjoy the process because I felt like it was kind of like um, there was just something missing. And then I started developing my own uh, formulas kind of thing. And this is where the process got a lot more interesting. This is where things started to grow a lot more. Um, and right now I have I have maybe, well, overall between between all the different platforms, more than 100 courses. Um, but you know, I, I built those over a span of three years. So, uh, so it does take time. It does take time. Yeah. And, uh, could you talk about your, I suppose the creative process that goes into writing a course? How do you go about it? Do you like, do you get an idea and, uh, like, like how long does it take between getting an idea about what you want to teach about and, having the course uh, uploaded on Udemy or Skillshare? Um, see, when I was when I was first starting, the creative process was was a lot more stupid, if you want, where I would think about an idea that I like, an idea that I think is amazing, and then make a course about it. And then sometimes you notice that, you know, what's, what interests you doesn't interest 99.999% of the people you're trying to target. So then I started doing a free coaching sessions. So I would literally just, you know, go on Zoom or on Skype with people and I do a coaching session with them. I'd start really identifying the roots of pain in their life, what's really causing them trouble, this, this and that. And then I collect all that data. I compile it. So I'm not making a course anymore. I'm more creating kind of like a guidebook uh, filled with solutions to some problems that I encountered with a lot of people. And this is the, where the creative aspect steps in, is that I use my own approach that I used with those people online and it helped them. I translate that process into, into a course and then into a book, into an ebook, into a blog, into a video to try to outsource it for as many people. And I was wondering, yeah, and because um, uh, mm-hmm. you, as you talked about, you were in Ottawa for three years, and you ended up quitting on that last year. Um, how much, um, let's say, um, your your experience in Ottawa kind of also helps you in your creative process when you're creating these courses at, at the university? Yeah, yeah, at the university. Uh, probably there's there's no correlation. I, I never, I never, there's, there's no, there's no experience that you, that you can take because lectures in, in school are very different than courses online. Are you, they, in school is a lot more theoretical. It's all theory, 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 and then exam and you don't, you have no idea what the exam is about. Uh, online courses, if you just throw theory, 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 uh, people are not going to like it. Because people want to buy something and actually want to see the process. They want to get a result out of it, you know? 
Uh, people don't want me to just explain to them, for example, how habits work. This is the psychology of habits. There you go. No, people want me to show them that and then walk them through it. And that's, uh, if, if anything, school might have a bad influence on that because they teach you to just teach theory and, and, and just preach about the theory and how good the theory is and how amazing it is and how it can change the world. And then how do we apply the theory? Okay. You'll, you'll get that next year and then, you know, in a future course, you know, and, and that, that just doesn't work online with online course creation. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. And, um, also, I'd, uh, I want to ask you what what are your what do your insights look like on uh, I suppose on Udemy or your or the websites where you sell your courses? Like, uh, are people who are buying the courses young or in young adults or in Canada outside of Canada? What does what Udemy? Does it look like? Udemy. Uh, I have I have the most data on Udemy because I have uh, the most students on Udemy. Uh, there is. Today, actually, it's, uh, it's at 99 point something, 99,000 students. So almost at 100,000 on Udemy. And, uh, students are from more than a hundred and 160 plus countries. So it's not just Canada. It's not just the U.S. You have a lot of countries. Well, sometimes when I go through the list, there's even countries that I never ever heard of. Really? Like, like, it's just weird. And they speak a lot of different languages. Of course, all the, all the courses all taught in English, but, but, you know, you see, there's a lot of diversity and the insight that Udemy gives is, is pretty good because you can actually contact these people. Like, um, like I have a hundred thousand people. I can reach out to them. I can talk to them. I can, I can send them emails, you know? So it's not just that they bought the course and then they don't, I don't know them and they don't know me. So, so they have really good insights and, um, and, you know, I just work on that. that that's the data I use, you know? Mm -hmm. And I suppose, uh, what, when I heard you on the Jacob Kelly's podcast, the, the other thing that you mentioned was that, uh, you also use LinkedIn as, as a platform to reach out to people and, uh, I suppose get exposure. Like how how do you go about it? Because in my look, the way I've used LinkedIn, I've simply used it as you know the person who's putting their you know their professional resume or whatever, and just trying to get uh, to reach out to employers whenever you need a job or or so. But uh, like I I didn't think of uh, LinkedIn as the platform where you could actually reach out to people. So could you talk a little bit about LinkedIn as well? You know, you know, LinkedIn has a lot of pros and cons. Uh, if you guys are on LinkedIn, you probably get a lot of messages saying uh, like, Hey, Abel, thanks for connecting with me. I just wanted to introduce myself and try to sell you my service. This happens. This happens so often. I have, I have a lot of people on LinkedIn. I have maybe 15, 14, 15,000 connections. And every single day I get those messages. I don't do that. I don't like to harass people this way because it leaves a bad impression. What I do on LinkedIn is that you can leverage your platform. You can leverage your own profile. It's like a resume, like you're saying. It's like a resume. And then people can find you. People can find you because LinkedIn has a very powerful search engine optimization. So when if you, let's say you put your name and you put, you know, digital marketing, 
If people look for digital marketing Ottawa on Google, LinkedIn is going to pop up. And when LinkedIn pops up, they scroll down, they're going to see your profile. So it's a good way of exposure. And another thing is it's a good way to acquire high ticket clients because LinkedIn is filled with professionals, business owners, CEOs, C-level people, executives. There's, there's no like 16 year olds who are on TikTok making videos of them dancing. It's people who have, who have the investments you need, people who, people who you can actually work with, you know? So LinkedIn for high ticket sales, if you do it properly, is a gold mine, is a gold mine. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, um, yeah, and uh, I also want to talk about uh, your books. So, like, I noticed that, uh, like, your the the subject matter for your books are a little different <laughs> from like the the stuff you you teach in your courses sure. or uh, the stuff uh, people would I suppose would assume that you write a book about. So, could you talk a little bit about your your books and what you write about? So, so the first book, The Habits of Success, I, I wrote it maybe three years ago, but I did not publish it until last year. Um, and I just, I was really just, you know, trying, I was looking at a lot of successful people and, and, and they all had things in common, you know, Bill Gates, different than Warren Buffett, different than Elon Musk, different than Tony Robbins, but they all had stuff in common. They all read, they all had some habits that they do. And I'm saying if those people take the time out of their day, out of their very busy days to do those habits, it means that, you know, there's some kind of benefits to it. And I started implementing those habits. And at first it was hard and it was a process. And at the end of the day, you know, I made a book about this process and about some of the habits of the most successful people in the world and how you can leverage that uh, to your own advantage. But, but that wasn't, you know, that book didn't take me a long time to write and, uh, it was just, it was just something I, I, I did in terms of like, I wanted to start writing to want to get into it. And which led me to the other book, The Pursuit of Meaning. And, and that, that took me a full year. I started on January 1st, uh, 2019 and I published it on December 31st. So literally from January 1st, December 31st. And I would write, uh, every single day. And, uh, it's mostly philosophy. So, uh, I would have to read a lot in the morning about what I'm going to talk about and then think about it and then uh, get some arguments about it, some ideas around it to, to make the book. And, and I made it because I knew that this is, this was one of the biggest problems. I was talking to, you know, a lot of my friends, a lot of my clients. And one of the main things that they struggle with, Tyler, you know, I don't, I don't know what my, what the meaning of life is. And they get all existential and stuff. And I'm like, that's a problem. People don't know what their passion is, what they want to do. They're like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do this or do that, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, this is a problem. You know, this is a problem. And there's not a lot of people who address that. They just tell you most, most people, influencers and gurus, they're like, go find your passion and pursue it. And if you do, you know, life is going to be amazing. And all those youngsters are like, okay, I understand that, but, but how do I find my passion? You know, you know, it's, it's one way to say, you know, go find it, but like, how do we find it? So, 
so I wrote the book to make it to make it easier for people mm-hmm. to be able and to with, find what they really want. Yeah, yeah, and without spoiling the book at all, I was wondering, like, why? Why would you say it's the reason why, like, for a lot of us, we kind of get to university and we're like, I would, I, I wish, I, could, I wish there was data on this. I'm sure there is, but I want to see the data of students who kind of get to university and they get into that second year and completely switch programs. And just trying to find out what they actually like and what they don't like. Why do you, what's the reason do you think that happens? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Like I talked about this in the first chapter is that uncertainty is huge. People, people at 18 years old or 17, they go to school and they're like, uh, you know, their parents ask them, you know, what do you want to study? They're like, Oh, like uh, I, I, I really love business. Right. And then they get into business, they start studying it and they're like, Oh, I hate it. And then they switch into another program. You know, you're talking about some people that switch between two programs. You have people who switch like three or four times, you know, and they, and at the end, they end up in a program that they don't really like, but they're just like, you know what? I've been switching so much. I might as well just finish my degree and see where I end up. And you're like, okay, well, you're done your degree and now what? What do you want to do? And you find you find a lot of people and there's statistics about it. How many people actually work in the same field they graduated in is a lot smaller than the number of people working in a field that's completely different than the program they graduated from. And that says a lot. That says a lot that people were not mature enough to really, really know what they want to do. And and they got they were dealt out of bad hands and they got thrown into this storm. Take a year off. Don't go to school at 18. Take a year off. Really figure out what you want because most people won't make a right decision at 18 years old. You know, if we, if we really think what we want it to be at 18, holy, like it would be completely different from where you are today, you know? And, and that's, that's a problem, man. That's a problem. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, I suppose I I want to ask you, how do you, I guess, juggle all these things that you do, like writing for your books, writing books, blogs, and courses, and at the same time, uh, like, I suppose, I assume that you must have also other projects in development or those kind of things. And, And also, when you're back in school, having school... Uh, as well because school can be just doing school and working or doing school and something else that's that's already you know like that's already a full-time a full-time uh thing you know so like how do you juggle all these things well you know uh at first when i was when i was in school it was it wasn't easy it wasn't easy that's why that's why i said no more that's why I said I'm done because school is time consuming. And if you want to perform well, you have to spend time. You have to spend energy and effort. And when I was in school, I wasn't able to do it as much. Uh, during the summer, during the summer, I wouldn't take summer courses. I would literally grind all the time. And then I would reap the benefits during the school year of whatever I built. But then during the school year, because I can't work on it properly, then I start seeing my progress going down until I get to the summer and then I can pick it up again. 
And then at one point I just said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And now I switched into like a very, a very disciplined uh, lifestyle. You know, lights off at 11.30 at night means lights off at 11.30 at night. Uh, wake up at 5.30 in the morning means wake up at 5.30 in the morning. Like, my friends know this. My friends are watching this. They know this. I don't party anymore. I don't I don't go and, and have dinner at a restaurant and, and drink beer. I just don't do that. Uh, it's not... I'm not saying this is the right the right thing to do. It's... It really just depends on, on what you want to achieve, right? And, and you know, with all these things, that's a lot of stuff. There's a lot to do. And there's no way I can do that and be effective if I don't put a routine and a system in my life that allows me to achieve the results I want to achieve. And, uh, well, the last thing I want to talk to you about is your public speaking. Uh, I saw that you're doing, you do some public speaking as well. So how, how did you get into that and how do you find it? Uh, it's, uh, maybe, maybe that's, that's, uh, one thing I learned from school. Uh, I was in my, in my first, in my first year, I had a microeconomics class and I read a lot about microeconomics and economics in general before, before the class. So, so, uh, the professor asked a question and I knew the answer. And it was a big auditorium, two, three hundred people. And I noticed that I was, that I was too scared to raise my hand back then and, and answer the question. And, mm-hmm. and when I did, and when I did, I couldn't even speak properly that I almost, that I almost screwed up the answer. And I got back home that night and I said, something needs to be done, man. Like you just can't be like that. Mm-hmm. And I went on uh, on Google and I literally wrote public speaking Ottawa. And I came across this club called Toastmasters, where you literally it's just a bunch of people where uh, you get to you get to speak in front of them. You get to present speeches. You meet people, yada, yada, yada. And I and I did that. And then I had a mentor. I had a mentor. Her name is Diane. And she started you know, teaching me how to, how to communicate, how to speak, uh, how to give speeches. And that led me to the international speech contests. So, um, so it's about 5,000 participants around the world. Um, they would compete on seven stages to get to the finals. Mm-hmm. And, and I won a club. I won an award, uh, club level. I won an award at uh, area, another at district and at division. And, uh, this is kind of where it ended. This is when I stopped. Uh, it was the point where I, I gave a speech in front of, uh, almost 500 people. Um, and I didn't win and I didn't win that competition, but it was just after that experience, like, like I don't care if there's 500, 4,000 or, or 50,000 or a million, like I'm good. And I, when I got my experience from it, I started doing some speaking, you know, uh, by myself. I would have like, you know, small events. They would, they would tell me to come, to come speak there. Um, sometimes online or whatever. And I still go to the club, but I got what I want out of it. And I'm still, I'm still going to go for the international speech contest again next year. Mm-hmm. The, it's, it's crazy because throughout this podcast, just, li- just listening to what you've been saying, like the work ethic you, you, you put in these different, uh, avenues whether it's public speaking or marketing or writing a book it's the type of work ethic you see 
or I see it all the time with my teammates uh, on the soccer team, like just the, that athlete work ethic. And to see that athlete work ethic in other avenues, I think as it's very fascinating to me because you don't, I feel like you, you, you do see it sometimes, but you, you often see it with like, well, you have a perception of what celebrities do and et cetera. But to see somebody at your level really have that type of work ethic is, I, I think it's, it's been one of the things that comes out in me. Like, how'd you build that work ethic? It didn't, like, it doesn't come naturally. It, it really doesn't. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it takes time to build it. You, you need to have first, you need to, you need to have a vision. Like you need to have a vision. If I, if I tell you that I have my life visions, I know where I want to be in five years. I know where I want to be in 10 and 20 and 30 years. Like I know where I want to be, you know, and I would stop at nothing to get there. I would stop at nothing to get there and see when I didn't have a life vision, my work ethic was nothing compared to what it is right now because because there wasn't a bigger image. You didn't have, I didn't have a reason that would get me out of bed when I wake up on the wrong side of it. And I feel like I just want to stay in bed and scroll on Instagram for two hours. You, you got to have this, this vision. And, and look, a lot of people, they, they, they mistake that as I want to make a lot of money. Money is, is an okay source of motivation, but. It's not gonna, it's not gonna give you the work ethic you're looking for. You need, you mm-hmm. need, you need something, you need something a lot stronger, whether it's, it's your family or someone you love or just making yourself proud. It's something, something deeper, something, something more on mm-hmm. self actualization level. When you're working mm-hmm. and, and in the back of your head, you're pushing yourself with reasons that are, that are that strong. You're fueling yourself with, with love, passion, and inspiration, truly, you, mm-hmm. you, you don't have an option. You don't have an option but to have crazy work ethic because it's on your mind mm-hmm. 24-7, you know? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I suppose this is a good place to end. And uh, I want to ask you the, the question we ask all our guests to end the podcast is what are some books or movies or whatever um content you could recommend to people uh listening to this especially now in time of quarantine is there a specific uh field or a specific topic genre or just in general just in general just in general the first the first book i would i would recommend is uh, called man's search for meaning by victor frankel uh, Victor Frankl was, uh, he was imprisoned in the concentration camps, in the Nazi concentration camps, and he wrote a fascinating book about the meaning of life. Uh, another book that I can recommend for people starting a business is called The Lean Startup. If you, you have a business, you have a startup, you want to start something, read The Lean Startup. It's revolutionary. And just in terms of, in terms of, uh, of mindsets, there's a book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by Robin Sharma. And it will give you a perspective on life, on, on mindset, on work ethic, on, and on habits that can really, that can really set you apart, that can really set you, uh, on the right path. And if you combine those three books, you, you, you get a, you get a nuclear bomb there. Mm. All right. Well, this, 
All this right. was uh, Noah Mary B on the Beyond Culture podcast. This is Ivan and this is my co-host Abel. Thank you for listening to this episode. Goodbye and good night. Thanks, guys. Good night.